Is the U.S. about to step up its offensive in Pakistan? If there is a major terrorist attack which is traced back to the Pakistani tribal areas, all bets are off. How seriously should we take the latest terror alert? Also, the Tory conference warns of big changes in the defence review. I will take no risks with British security. BFBS. Headlines. Afghanistan's president has described the new High Peace Council as the country's greatest hope. Hamid Karzai has opened the council's first session today, calling on the Taliban to seize the chance to bring peace to the country. An inquest jury has ruled a police marksman acted lawfully when he shot and killed a barrister to end a siege in London. Mark Saunders had been drinking heavily before the armed standoff in Chelsea two years ago. A former paramedic has admitted stabbing his girlfriend yards from the hospital where she worked. Jonathan Vass killed Jane Clough outside Blackpool's Victoria Hospital. He was out on bail after being charged with rape. In Hungary, officials are trying to stop toxic sludge reaching Europe's second largest river, the Danube. The country's Prime Minister has warned it's an ecological catastrophe. Rebecca Adlington has won the 800 metres freestyle at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi. There have also been gold medals today for England in athletics, gymnastics and shooting. While the Commonwealth Games chief Mike Fennell's voiced concern about the number of swimmers who've been hit by Delhi Belly. It's thought the bug has hit up to 40 of the home nation's swimmers. That's the latest. I'm Adam Gilchrist. Is the war in Afghanistan about to explode across the border into all-out conflict in Pakistan? The Taliban's carried out a series of attacks this week on NATO supply convoys, destroying dozens of fuel tankers after Pakistan closed a border crossing. It could have a big impact. Up to 80% of NATO supplies enter Afghanistan through Pakistan. Meanwhile, the US has warned American tourists in Europe of a heightened risk of terrorist attack, an alleged plot which it's claimed has its roots in Pakistan. Pakistan. Well, earlier I spoke to journalist Ahmed Rashid in Lahore. He's written about the Taliban and its influence in Pakistan and Afghanistan. There is certainly a, a blow-up between the United States and NATO on one side and Pakistan on the other um, because of the increased attacks by drone missiles. There were 22 attacks in September in Pakistan in the tribal areas, and that was followed by four separate helicopter-borne gunship attacks uh, by NATO and U.S. forces um, from Afghanistan into Pakistan. And the last one killed three Pakistani soldiers. So immediately after that, Pakistan shut down the border that allows um, goods and convoys from NATO, uh, which, which arrive in the, at Karachi port and drive up through the Khyber Pass into Afghanistan. They shut that gate into the Khyber Pass. And since then, uh, the, Tal- the Pakistani Taliban have had a field day. They have been uh, hitting NATO targets right across the length of Pakistan, across about a thousand kilometers. They've hit uh, NATO convoys four or five times very seriously, um, both in Sindh and in Punjab provinces uh, and in Baluchistan province and in the frontier. So they've been active in all four provinces, which shows their strength. The Pakistani Taliban that you talk of, their action, do you see that as uh, opportunist publicity or is there something more sinister at work there? 
Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of suspicion. First of all, the army and the government have not provided these NATO convoys with any kind of security, even, even uh, after these attacks started. Um, and, and some of these convoys are very large, 40, 50 tankers or trucks at one go. It wouldn't be a problem to provide security, but the government has not done that. On the other hand, I think the Taliban are clearly seeing, you know, this is the way they can make their mark and gain a lot of popularity amongst the public because there's a lot of anti-Americanism uh, at the moment, which is, you know, partly being fueled by this. And even though the Americans have given enormous aid um, and helicopters for the flood relief, the Taliban are trying to feed into uh, sort of latent anti-Americanism in the army and in the public. Do you see any link between what the Pakistani Taliban are doing and this heightened terror threat in Europe? Well, it, the, it's all coming at the same time. The, you know, there's there's no question. Um, personally, I think it was probably the wrong moment uh, for NATO helicopters to do hot pursuit into Pakistan, which triggered off all this, because at the moment, no matter what the deep-seated uh, contradictions there are between the Pakistani military and NATO, um, I think the West needs Pakistani intelligence help in dealing with the, with the terror threat. I don't think there's a linkage as such. It's all just coincidentally all come together. The blow-up with Pakistan, the intelligence threat, the increased stepping up of the Pakistani Taliban and the Afghan Taliban, um, it's, all, it's all come together. Clearly, if there is, uh, uh, God forbid, a major terrorist attack in Europe or the United States, which is traced back to the Pakistani tribal areas, then I think all bets are off, and, and we may well see uh, a very much stepped-up American activity in Pakistan. Do you think, Ahmed, that we're approaching a time when some kind of direct U.S., more formal direct U.S. military intervention is inevitable in Pakistan? I really don't think so. I don't think the U.S. can afford that kind of intervention. It's possible. Certainly if there's a terrorist attack or the suspicion of a terrorist attack, which is traced back to Pakistan, uh, we could see U.S. Um, uh, stepping up their drones and bombing outside the areas uh, with, with which they have agreed to do uh, with the Pakistani authorities, that is the tribal areas. We haven't seen drones or bombings outside those areas. That could, that could certainly increase. Uh, uh, the area under bombardment could increase. But I don't think we're going to see a stage of boots on the ground. I don't think uh, the Americans or NATO can afford something like that. But clearly there's going to be um, you know, a lot more pressure on Pakistan. We know that the U.S. Congress is very angry right now and frustrated. So is the Obama administration. If push comes to shove, I just can't see the Americans um, putting men on the ground here. Ahmed Rashid. Well, America's now apologised for the attack which killed those Pakistani soldiers. Christopher Lee is our defence analyst. Hi, Christopher. Hello. Is that apology enough to defuse the situation? No, it was, it was, it was coming. You, 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 you attack someone, afterwards you apologise, and then you start the whole diplomatic thing, and then the, the gates are open in the Khyber Pass. Um, there's nothing new in these uh, tanker attacks. They've been going on for five years. But they have increased. Uh, the actual drone attacks have increased, haven't they? Uh, that's different from the, the, the drone attacks. I mean, uh, Ahmed Rashid was talking about 22 uh, mm. attacks last month. The average is about eight a month. 
So that is a huge uh, increase. Now, one of the reasons it's uh, an increase is that some of the cross-border stuff is now being handed over to the Central Intelligence Agency in Washington. Mm. And the CIA at the moment has got 3,200, 3,200 operatives working on that border. They are the people that are identifying where the target should be. They picked up one guy they've been interrogating. This is Siddiqui. They picked him up. They've been interrogating him. He's been giving them targets. They've been acting upon the intelligence. They do it quickly because they have to do it quickly because otherwise the intelligence becomes old. Isn't this also a sign that Obama is getting frustrated? He's saying, come on, sort out the terrorists in your country. It's key to sorting out what's going on in Afghanistan and you're just not doing enough, so I'm going to take some more action. Uh, I'm not sure it's Obama. But it's certainly true that the CIA has been told. I mean, eventually, you know, if you, if you pulled out American uh, combat troops on a big scale, you would not pull out the CIA. I think the CIA stay there. They're the key to sort of, uh, they call it throat-slitting uh, along the Waziristan, uh, Waziristan border. Just, ex- just explain exactly why this really matters to what's going on in Afghanistan. Right. If I was, let's say I'm training at Catrick, and I know that I'm going to be deployed to uh, Afghanistan, Around me, when I get to Afghanistan, there's going to be a conflict in Pakistan itself. There's a conflict already going on in Iran. And the guys in in India are trying to have a conflict with both of them. Eventually, what's going to sort out Afghanistan is not the fact that I've been sent there from Catrick or or my unit's been sent there. It's regional. Pakistan is the key to the future of Afghanistan. We are not, and that will determine how long uh, or how many times I actually have and, to go and there. And exactly how, how will that be resolved from, from Pakistan, exactly? Well, I mean, one of the difficulties at the moment, you, you've got um, uh, uh, the chief of staff, Kayami. There was a meeting a couple of weeks ago between the chief of staff or chief of the general staff, um, the prime minister and the president, and the chief of the general staff... Who this, is your, this is your inside information again, isn't it, Christopher? Well, sort of. <laughs> um, there, you had uh, President Sadari, Prime Minister Galani, and General uh, Kayani. And General says to them, now listen, we've had you guys making a mess of the flood relief. You're making a mess of the counter-terrorist uh, uh, organisation. You're making a mess of the economy. Now, we're not suggesting we are going to take over, but the whole history of Pakistan is that when, when they get really, really into the clag, what happens? Military coup. Military coup. Although, having said that, Pervez Musharraf uh, has said in an interview only this week that military coups are a thing of the past. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah you have another thought about what he might be up to soon, don't you? Well, he's going to go back, and that's a big risk. Uh, Musharraf was, was considered, when he was president there... Uh, General Musharraf, he was considered absolute sort of uh, a rubbish, but he was our rubbish, and so that was okay. He was the guy that put uh, the put uh, Kayami, General Kayami, into the job. Last so July, Kayami they... was supposed to have been kicked out. He told these two people, the president and the prime minister, "I'm staying. I'm not moving." That means. I control the military. That means eventually, if necessary, I will control the country. OK. Well, what about these claims, then, of a potential link between the Taliban attacks and the terror alert in Europe? Yeah, there are two things. fellow that points an AK-47 or an RPG uh, at, let's say, a, a British soldier is not the guy that puts a haversack bomb on, a, on, a, on the underground in London. Is, is it possible that the same mastermind is overseeing the whole thing, though? It's the same principle. 
I mean, uh, if you if you look at, for example, uh, Al Qaeda and Taliban, which are two separate organisations, there is that sense of the disaffected, isn't it? And so the person that goes from Luton to a training camp, let's say in Afghanistan or more likely in Pakistan, is going to have the same motives. But he is fed up anyway. He comes back. The Pashtun, that's uh, uh, that is uh, either Pakistan Taliban or is Afghan Taliban just keeps pointing at our guys in Helmand or whatever. He is not thinking, I'm going to get on the bus and I'm going to go to Luton. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Well, that latest European terror alert may be frightening, but it's also pretty vague, warning of a threat to public transport or tourist attractions. How serious is that threat and how worried should we be? Praveen Swamy is the diplomatic editor of The Daily Telegraph. I think the way in which these warnings were issued ended up causing a great deal of public panic, um, which isn't a good thing. Um, people were terrified about being, about traveling to work, about being out in public places, and that's precisely what um, the terrorists targeting our cities want. Um, that's, that's obviously not the way in which we should be going. Why do you think they were issued at all? They were credible and serious threats um, to European and American cities. Um, there was a massive intelligence to support that, and obviously governments were concerned. Um, but I'm not sure issuing warnings, asking people to stay away from public places or not uh, to avoid using public transport are a particularly useful way of dealing with these things. Um, the fact is um, that countries in Europe, that cities in Europe and the United States are likely to face threats like these um, for many years. And obviously, um, we can't stop living our lives. Um, because of this threat. And yet politicians don't seem to be able to win because if they were not to have issued any kind of advisory and there were to have been attacked, then they'd get it in the neck as well. Um, yes, and that's probably why these threats were issued. I think it's important for politicians to ensure that the public remains well informed about the terrorist threat um, to their countries um, and um, that uh, people are made aware that they are likely to going to have to live with a long-term threat um, but I think that process needs to be educative and be handled in a way that doesn't end up causing counterproductive alarm and panic. Praveen Swamy from the Daily Telegraph. While staying with terrorism, militants in Yemen have fired a rocket-propelled grenade at a motorcade carrying British embassy staff. Six months ago, our ambassador to Yemen narrowly escaped a suicide bomb attack. Chris, um, where does the Yemen stand on the scale, in the whole scale of global terrorism? Okay, uh, uh, the Yemen is a poor country. The present leader has been there for 31, 32 years. Uh, he's right in the middle. He has to support different groups. When the pressure was on in Afghanistan and in, on the Pakistan border, a lot of al-Qaeda moved where? To the Yemen. The CIA put people in to counter that, and they've also got advisors trying to help him. Now, a lot of them, CIA and the al-Qaeda have now moved to Somalia. So the two places that we've really got to keep an eye on all the time, the Yemen and Somalia, and one of the next attacks might come from people who are actually training in Somalia, not necessarily in Yemen, not necessarily in Afghanistan, as in Pakistan. Um, I know a couple of the targets that people were thinking about, the intelligence services saying we think these are the two targets, particularly two targets, one in London and one in Paris. 
You're not going no to no tell us about those targets, Of course not, no. no. But um, no, I'll write it on a piece of paper and do <laughs> Pass what you it want over to, do to so. me. <laughs> but the point is, I mean, this is why I disagree with the guy from the Taylor Delegate. There was no panic. Where's the panic? Where's the panic? I, I, I checked with people in, in, in Berlin, in Paris and in London. No panic. People. Weren't... I didn't change my routine, did you? No, no, no. Stinking trains. Um, <laughs> no. It, it, that is the important, the important side of it. But the threat is there. It's been at a severe threat since January in the United Kingdom. And I think that people actually understand this. But it, the people that are really bothered about it are the Americans. And the Americans always are. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, cuts dominate the Tory conference, but there's a promise of more support for British forces. And how the Navy's fighting off the threat of big cuts in its budget. The Prime Minister and the Defence Secretary are meeting with the National Security Council again, trying to hammer out final decisions on the Strategic Defence and Security Review. The Chancellor's due to outline his plans for spending cuts across government in a fortnight's time, but the arguments continue over what parts of the defence budget should be sacrificed. The need for cuts overshadowed what should have been a celebratory Conservative Party conference, their first in 14 years with the party in power. Here's what David Cameron had to say on Trident, the Defence Review, and first on Afghanistan. British combat forces will not remain in Afghanistan after 2015. By then we will have been there for 14 years and in Helmand province for nine years. That is three years longer than World War II. But let a message go out from this conference, from this hall today. For those who have served, for those who bear the scars, for those who will never come home, this country has gratitude beyond words for your service and your sacrifice. Today we're still geared up to fight old wars. We have armoured brigades ready to repel Soviet tanks across the German plain. But frankly, we struggle to provide enough helicopters for our soldiers in Afghanistan for the real war we are really fighting. I have to say that since becoming Prime Minister, nothing has shocked me more than the catastrophic state of the defence budget. So our defence review will match our commitments with the resources that we've got. This will mean some big changes. But I promise you this, I will take no risks with British security. That is why when more and more countries have or want nuclear weapons, we will always keep our ultimate insurance policy. We will renew the nuclear deterrent based on the Trident missile system. The Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, spoke to our reporter, James Hurst, at the conference, asking him about progress on the Defence Review. The National Security Council has not yet finished its own deliberations on uh, the big issues, some of the big strategic issues in the Defence Review. Uh, we'll have to work through the second order uh, work when we've, when we've got those uh, indications. So we've uh, a lot to be doing in the next few weeks. But have you perhaps been able to gain any concessions from the Chancellor? My um, discussions with the Treasury will remain uh, private um, for obvious reasons, but there's a constant process ongoing between our officials, Treasury officials, Number 10 officials and the Cabinet Office. You spoke... Uh, in some detail about the military covenant, you gave examples of things you're doing like uh, initiatives on mental health, more money into housing. 
The Prime Minister promised to put the military covenant into law. What principles are going to be enshrined in law and when will we see those? Well, those are still discussions that we're having about exactly how we would uh, formulate that sort of legislation. Um, but I think it's fair to say that we, we accept that unless pressure is put um, legally on governments, um, they may not always choose to conform to the sort of approaches that, that I would want to see. Um, and had we had a better framework in recent years, we might have seen better treatment of our armed forces and their families than we did. But these issues will cover a pretty complex territory. We're talking about educational attainment and uh, we've talked about healthcare issues and accommodation and so on. Uh, what we have to find are uh, objective measurements by which we would determine how well or how poorly any government was doing. And that's, that would be a, a difficulty getting that into law. You made a very strong commitment to replacing Trident. Your coalition partners will be wondering if that commitment is still like for like and is it still in this parliament or could it be delayed until after the next election? Well, we have completed the value for money study on the Trident programme and we'll announce that in due course. But no one can have any doubt that we will continue and have uh, a credible minimum nuclear deterrent that continues for the UK without interruption. Are you confident of bringing the Liberal Democrats along with you? Well, you know, the Liberal Democrats have their own views on this subject. Uh, I hope we'll be able to persuade them um, on the merits of the choices, um, on the basis of the information and the objective data that we will set out next week. Where you and William Hague both started was Afghanistan. It is uppermost day-to-day in people's minds in military matters. The 2015 withdrawal of combat troops, is that set in stone or, or is that subject to review if development of Afghan forces doesn't go as you hope? Well, it's very important to send the signal to the Afghan government that we take seriously their own uh, deadlines of 2014 for taking control of their own security. As I said today, they're ahead of schedule. Um, by the middle of next year, the Afghan National Army will be bigger than the ISAF forces. And I think that what we must be very careful is not to believe that we can always call the tune. And because the Afghan government, as it gains greater capability, is going to want to take more decisions for themselves, that's a good thing. Well, James is with me now in the studio. Um, James, I saw the TV version of that interview. He had a big smile all over his face. Is he the schoolboy uh, behaving himself now? Um, certainly he and the Prime Minister were trying to put on a show of unity. Um, Liam Fox calling the Prime Minister his greatest ally in the discussions, which he said had taken on a soap opera dimension hmm. uh, without necessarily accusing anybody when he said that. Uh, Prime Minister stressing this week that Liam Fox is very much involved in the SDSR discussions. Um, and you heard that phrase, no risks will be taken with British security. Last week, he was simply saying that the fears expressed in that leaked letter were unfounded. So uh, th- th- they're talking along the same positive line. Now, whether that is because they put this past them mm. or, or maybe something to do with the chat that Liam Fox has seen having he, with Andy Coulson in a bar. Do you, think he's, do you think he's winning the argument then, Liam uh, Fox? He certainly seems like a man not, not as burdened as he has seemed in recent weeks. I mean, when, when I asked him if he won concessions from the Chancellor, there was a broad smile, as you said. Mm. Uh, you can read a lot into a smile. Um, but he, he came across as, uh, as, as somebody who I think, you know, seemed pretty upbeat and, and seemed to feel in control of what's going on at the moment. In his speech, though, you, you notice actually what actually happened was he went on the attack on defence cuts. He put it to 
the blame on Labour. He didn't as you'd really, expect. As you'd expect. But what he wasn't saying was, look, it's all going to be okay. He didn't push much in the way of positive messages. He said, we're going to have to do this. He did say, we won't let you down to the armed forces. But he wasn't trying to say, look, we can restructure. Um, we can do this more cheaply without eating into our capability. Uh, you know, it, it came across as a very positive speech that he was in control. But actually, if you analyse the words... Most of it was attack about we shouldn't have to be doing this. Christopher, the National Security Council is meeting again. Is this where the final decisions are going to be made? Not the final decisions, but the broad decisions. And this is how much money you've got to take out. This is the sort of business that you can't go for. Um, we're already getting hints. I mean, you know, Germany, for example, the Prime Minister uh, in his speech said... We've got tanks in Germany all race. You know, the last one across the Vases is Sissy. You know, to head for, head for, head for Moscow. Uh, the, the truth is, they've taken the decision that, that that Germany has got to be run down considerably and do it. There, and you're claiming your prediction last week is coming true already. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> the other thing is, I mean, I, I don't know, James. When Liam Fox is sort of saying that they've never seen such a mess. This suggests they haven't read any of the House of Commons Defence Committees for the past 14 years, that he's been in the job for five years and he should have known that anyway. So it's a bit, a bit of a again, focus, isn't it? They, they, yeah, absolutely, and this is what party conference is about. You're talking to your own audience. It, it, it's, about, it's about your branding. Um, and, and of course you know he has, really. Yeah, and that's true. But, 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 the, but, but, but the government will say... They knew it was a mess. They didn't realise quite how much until they got inside. And there's been several references back this week to that famous note left by the departing Chief Secretary to the Treasury, which was simply, sorry, there's no money left. But, but Jane, if you and I are sitting in Helmand, right, we could have told them a whole <laughs> lot of the business that was a problem. The, uh, our we commanding officers would have said, this is a problem with the structure. And when we talk about, you know, we've got to get rid of the carriers, are we not going to get rid of the carriers or, or whatever, what we've also got to do is to start saying... What about the whole structure of the organisation? That's where the savings going to come. And, and a reminder, we've said this before, when the SDSR is released, and Liam Fox still didn't know. He told me he knew when he had to have it done by, but he didn't know when it was going to be announced. That's still being sorted. We won't get all the answers. We will get, as Christopher says, a lot of the broad principles, but we're going to be left with an awful lot of new questions about how the detail will play out after that. All right, James, thank you. Is the Navy the whipping boy of the Strategic Defence and Security Review? As the final decisions are made, it looks like the Navy's struggling to fight its corner in Whitehall. Or is it? Reports suggest General Sir David Richards has successfully lobbied the Prime Minister to spare thousands of Army posts. But David Cameron's also hinted the second of two new aircraft carriers may be scrapped. Eric Grove is a Professor of Naval History at Salford University and he's on the line now. Uh, Professor Grove, thanks for your time today. Uh, do we need the Navy as it is? Absolutely. I mean, Britain is, I mean it, it, it often comes as a surprise to people that Britain is an island nation surrounded by water and that and the Navy is still, along with the Air Force, uh, 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 jointly the first line of defence. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, being able to... Uh, to um, uh, make a major uh, contribution to uh, controlling the seas, both uh, 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 offensively and defensively, should be the starting point of any British strategy, just as it, on the whole, has been throughout our history. And do you think the Navy's going to become the whipping boy of the Strategic Defence and Security Review? 
Well, there are signs. In Liam Fox's letter, he said about the uh, the mad idea of doing away with the amphibious squadron, which is the, the, by far the best way of getting uh, British forces to make. Well, well, well they, they, they certainly were, were uh, the kind of intervention that they did in Sierra Leone, which was by far the most satisfactory of Blair's wars. Uh, and and if, if we're going to use our armed forces proactively, we must be able to deploy them by sea. Now, if those kinds of, of suggestions are being put forward, it shows that there's a degree of what the Navy calls sea blindness around Whitehall, which, which is even worse than I imagined. So you don't think they have much support in Whitehall, then? Well, they, they, uh, they, I think there is a feeling in the civil service that the Navy is somehow old-fashioned, and therefore somehow it almost implied in your first question that we can do without it. But actually, the world stays the same. It's covered by water. If, if you look at the world from space, it's blue. It should be called Oceania, not Earth. Uh, and being able to exert power at and from the sea is a crucial component of any country's security policy, especially one that seems to wish to maintain some kind of global role. Christopher, um, Lynn Fox initially in favour of both aircraft carriers. Uh, where does David Cameron stand on this, do you think, now? Well, they're now starting to talk about one aircraft carrier, which is daft. Absolutely. Um, absolutely daft. I mean, you, you, you buy an aircraft carrier. After a time, you've got to put it in for refit. That's a two-and-a-half-year job. Well, what do you think about so the where's idea? the aircraft carrier you're supposed to be putting your aircraft with force projection protecting your ceilings gone? What, what do you make of these arguments, Professor Grover, though, of uh, maybe having one aircraft carrier, ha- having the other one built but keeping it uh, just in the dock and doing nothing with it until we can afford to put what we need on it and, and crew it, etc.? Well, um, it's rather strange. I mean, I agree with Chris that, in, that in fact, uh, really you need two aircraft carriers to have one. I mean, to be sure of having one, there are refit cycles, and, they're hoping, and they were hoping, in fact, to get by with two rather than three, which we had until quite recently. Um, and so if we're going to have a carrier capability, which is by far the best way of exerting mobile air power in the world, I mean, it was, they were aircraft carriers that got us in, into Afghanistan, for sort of better or worse, back in, back into, um, uh, back in, um, in 2001 and 2002. So I mean, if, if, if we don't have a carrier force, then that's sending out a signal to the world that Britain is no longer the power that perhaps uh, people thought we, thought we were. And do you agree with that, Christopher? I do. Just, just think, let's go back to our guy sitting on the ground in Helmand, yes, a soldier. Mm. Um, why do I need a Navy? Well, look around at the helicopter pilot who may be picking you up on, on a Kazivak. Quite often, Navy. Look at the intelligence that's coming in, provided by the Navy. Royal Marines, Navy, 40 Commando has just caught back. If you want uh, an aircraft carrier, you want it because you haven't got a, a, a runway elsewhere. And so, therefore, that's another reason to have the Navy. And the final thing is, 90% of everything we import comes by sea. What happens if it can't come? This country goes dead in nine days. There, gentlemen, we must leave it today. Professor Eric Grove, Christopher Lee, many thanks to you both for your time today. That's it for this week. Next time, we'll look at how the RAF's fighting its corner and we'll have all the latest on the Defence Review as those final decisions draw ever nearer. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.